Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the esteemed sociologist of emotion, Arlie Hochschild. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hi, is that Arlie? Yes, hi, hi Krista. Krista. Yes, good to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this. And I so apologize for the delays we had in this. It's totally unusual, and I think it happened twice with you. I really apologize. Uh, no problem. But but what we need to talk about has not diminished, so here we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no. no, we have construction going on here in our in our studio, and so I'm like coming in. Oh, the studio that. itself is very quiet, but there's just hammering as I walk in. Oh, for an audio yeah. <laughs> program, it's yeah. not so good. Are you, Chris, are, are they going to, I mean, I don't hear it, so. Where, where are you? Right now. Are you talking to me? Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm uh, in Northgate Hall, which is in uh, the basement of the journalism department at UC Berkeley. At Berkeley. Okay, great. Yeah, Berkeley, mm-hmm. which is three blocks from our home. Oh, what a, what a wonderful place to live. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're pretty good here. I don't like to, I don't want to start talking about anything substantive until we're really doing it. So, yeah, I think we're fine. Um, good. And where are you, Krista? Uh, we're in Minneapolis. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's You'll right. you'll understand this. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma and, you know, kind of went far, oh, okay. far, 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 far away. Yeah. And, um, and that's become more important to me in these recent years, that, you know, that part right. of me. And, um, right. and then our studio is in Minneapolis, and it has been for a long time. And... Uh, I've thought across the years about you know how the show might have been served by being on one of the coasts and and in these last few years since 2016 I'm I'm so glad we're in the middle of the country you know I think, yes. I think it oh, feels really uh, important and life giving yes yeah yes uh, so um, good good yeah, yeah. Um, so you were the child of a foreign service officer so you sound like you grew up all over the world. Well, uh, yes, to to some degree, mm-hmm. yeah. Starting mm-hmm. at age twelve, yeah, it was pivotal experience. And so your father was an ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to New Zealand, Ghana, and Tunisia. Yeah, we don't need to go into his yeah. rank, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. But did you He's, live in all? Were those places you lived in? I uh, lived in Israel. Okay. Uh, and uh, from age uh, 12 to 14, mm-hmm. very pivotal experience. Mm. And uh, then um, uh, New Zealand, mm-hmm. Wellington, New Zealand, mm. uh, went to the university uh, there, uh, Victoria University, so yeah. uh, in New Zealand. And then um, my folks uh, were in Ghana, and I spent a summer in Ghana, but right. by then I was in college. Mm-hmm. And then they were in Tunisia. And I actually spent uh, 
five months uh, doing a study on the emancipation of Tunisian girls. So with these French questionnaires, (laughs) that was my (laughs) second year of grad school at Berkeley. So, uh, yeah, so I I was very fortunate, really, Mm. to uh, get to experience all of that. Yeah. All of that, yeah. Was there um, a religious or spiritual background to your childhood um, in your family or in those places? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I would say there there was. Um, and uh, so are we starting? Yeah, 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 no, we're going, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, um, my uh, parents were uh, very religious Unitarians, oh, okay. and uh, so religious in the sense of uh, it being a very important thing to go to church on Sunday. And my brother and I would um, kind of uh, wrestle with each other and tickle and uh, <laughs> uh, in the back seat of our old son, mm-hmm. Hudson in Silver Spring, Maryland, yeah. and. Um, uh, and go drive to All Souls Unitarian Church in Washington, D.C., very mm-hmm. important to my father especially. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel particularly religious mm-hmm. at, at that point. And, but if I look back on it, what uh, the influence of that was is that there's... Um, an important part of one's self to express mm-hmm. and uh, to learn, to develop, and that it, for Unitarians, I th- the message I took away is that it's a very big world, and we have to learn to uh, get to know and r- r- empathize with and. Yeah. Uh, people in radically different cultures and that that's a good thing. We live in a big world. I think by the time I was uh, 16, I had that message, but I felt something missing. And uh, I got interested in the Quakers, who seemed to be much more... Okay, gang. So, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. You know, the Unitarians were very talky, right? <laughs> big talkers. You know, uh-huh. talk, talk, talk. The Quakers uh-huh. looked like they were kind of um, interesting. They, they were doers, yeah. and so I would say that that connection for me, um, when I was in high school. Um, very informal. I didn't become a formal Quaker or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it led me to um, volunteer on weekends when I was in high school um, at something we called Neighborhood House mm-hmm. on 10th and L Street. It was in the, the middle of the uh, the black area of Washington, D.C. Was that and a Dorothy that, Day? Was that one of the Dorothy Day projects? It knows. was not, but it was exactly like that. Right, okay. Yeah. And two conscientious objectors uh, were running it at mm. the time. And um, I just thought the people I met there were mm. extraordinary, <laughs> and I, I just loved the work. Yeah. I mean, we were painting houses and organizing a block party. I dealt with the kids, and... 
we were even killing rats at uh, you know, <laughs> one point. I, and it was a very friendly neighborhood. Mm. Um, and um, yeah. so we could go out in the evening. There was no fear of crime. People were very, hi, how are you doing? You know, yeah. friendly. This is all, you know, this so is all so interesting. That was all an amazing thing. But yeah. I think of it as part of my spiritual <laughs> Well, Well, and I think growth. how you've spoken about how... Um, Living in that diplomatic world, um, and I, I spent the '80s in Berlin, part of that time with the State Department. So I, I know what you said. You, oh, you, okay. Yeah. So you yeah. became fascinated, and and you know, also with the clarity of a child, um, by the distinction between inner experience and outer appearance. Um, oh yeah. And uh, which 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 it seems to me also like kind of is is what helped make you a, a sociologist. <laughs> Totally. Um, and you know, to me, to me, that also is. I think there's so many different ways to define what spiritual is, but but one way to think about it is about interior life. And um, so, anyway, I just I see that those interesting right. connections with with you right. as a sociologist eventually. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Wow. You know, I had um, a very uh, pivotal experience when I was twelve. Um, and a sort of make-or-break experience, you could say. Mm. Um, uh, I had had a perfectly normal middle-class uh, life. My dad was worked for the State Department. My mother was a homemaker. That was my older brother and myself. And um, everything, uh, you know, nothing was testing my... Yeah. Uh, my soul, well, except my brother, who teased me a lot. But, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but uh, what happened is that when I was 12, my mother and father were stationed in uh, Tel Aviv, Israel. Hmm. And it was the first time I'd been out of the country, and uh, we arrived, and it was extremely hot, this big hamsin, they call it. And... Hmm. The uh, my parents looked around for a school. The only one uh, that was English speaking was uh, the Tabitha School of Jaffa in Jaffa, which was near Tel Aviv, and it was extremely strict. And you rose when the teachers came in. There were no books. We had to copy uh, our lessons from the blackboard, and it was one light dangling. I'd never, it just was, felt Dickensian to me in a way, and I didn't know anybody. I felt ripped out of my childhood. And in the playground, it was very hot. I had this hot total bread sandwich, and everybody spoke a foreign language. I felt, I, I was a foot taller than everyone and mm. dressed in these you know, 1950s kind of Oxford <laughs> shoes that people were staring at. Right. And I just felt estranged. And finally at 4 o'clock, you know, the bell rang and I came home. And my mother asked me, well, dear, how was school today? <laughs> and I couldn't speak. I just, you know, torrent of tears and so she's, she's a very empathic person. She listened. And then she said, well, uh, look, if you still don't like school after three weeks, 
we'll send you home to grandma and grandpa hmm. in Boston. And then I really cried. You know, <laughs> Those are your options. No, yeah. you go yeah. halfway across the mm-hmm. world, away from my mother and father. That was, so I felt trapped. This was mm-hmm. kind of make or break. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. the next day I went back to school. I thought, okay, see if I can change my shoes and I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the kids were friendly, you know, mm-hmm. and they, I remember this one girl, mm-hmm. 12-year-old girl, Svia Schwartz, kind of tapped me on the shoulder and uh, to play tag, you know, I, I didn't understand that. And then she smiled at me and she tapped my shoulder again. Oh, it's tag. Okay. You know, right. I can play tag. So in that wordless way, I finally, you know, kind of reached out. And at the end of two years, you know, when you're 12 and 13, you do make fast friends. Yes. I had a very fast kind of um you know, I think that's my oh. uh, cell phone. Okay. Maybe can you, you can hear just, it? Yeah, but just yeah, if you me. can just mute it, that's great. Yeah, let me. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah. So, I mean, so that story, obviously... Um, you know, you're telling it now. It, there are seeds in there of what you do, what you do in the world now, what you what you want to help other help other people, the experience you want other people to have, and you know. So you are you are known within sociology as the founder of the sociology of emotion, and I, right. I just want to um, kind of summarize. And you tell me if I get this wrong, but but it feels important. I want to really dive deep into that. Um, but that the so that the backdrop of in terms of how we analyze uh, and address political and social dynamics, and especially in a time of discord like this, yes, um, where yes. where each side finds the other side, where the sides become more defined, and 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 they all everybody seems incomprehensible to everybody else, and so you know you right. you describe in the book kind of you know there's there's the there are ways of thinking about how people are being manipulated or bought. There are mm-hmm. ways of analyzing how people may are being misled, um, uh-huh. and then and then there are ways of us de- describing, you know, how pe- we're just different, and that there are distinct cultural values, kind of like the John, Jonathan Haidt way of analyzing um, the ways that we're different. And you've said mm-hmm. that for you, and especially as you watch these last few years unfold, and in American and, and now global life, like what is missing for you in all of this, while all of these ways of analyzing are useful, what's missing is an acknowledgement of the reality of emotion in politics. Right, and empathy. Yeah. And empathy. Right. You know, the um, idea of emotion being uh, basic and foundational to social and political life is not new. I mean, Max Weber... <laughs> talked of it mm-hmm. first day and, and uh, Emil Durkheim. So uh, that's not new. But I found that this important foundational reality of our feelings um, uh, 
we didn't have a language, a way of uh, conceptualizing it that mm-hmm. was that was useful. And yeah. so you can just say, oh, and, and that's number one, a missing language. And number two is the, a missing understanding of emotion. Uh, in common discourse, certainly uh, three decades ago, uh, the idea was that either you were thinking or you were, or you were emotional. Feeling. Right. Right. You were feeling. Right. Yeah. So when you were rational, you mm-hmm. had uh, no emotion, you mm-hmm. drained out. Or when you were emotional, there was no thinking to it. Yeah. And so I thought there's something wrong about that because um, when you're emotional, you you are seeing the world in a particular way and you have thoughts about the way you see it. You know, you yeah. are thinking. Um, and when you're rational, I mean, take the stock exchange or you know, people are making these, quote, rational decisions about uh, buy, sell, buy, yeah. sell stocks on the stock exchange. They're excited, they're elated, they're depressed, they're mm-hmm. emotional. Mm-hmm. So these two are intertwined in ways we have not carefully understood. So, yes, it um, led me to become extremely interested in emotion, in managing emotions, Uh evoking emotions and suppressing emotions in daily life and in work. So I came to study emotional labor, which is the labor of feeling the right, right thing for the job and from which you can become estranged, it led me to be interested in um, what I call feeling rules. rules yes, that's a, I mean, right, that's a phrase that, you, that, that is really associated with you. So, yeah, what, what do you mean? What is that phrase? What's in that phrase for you? Well, when you're at a, a party, you should feel happy to see your friends. Mm-hmm. You should feel elated. What if you feel depressed, you know? Or if you're at a funeral and you're supposed to be sad, feel sad. Um, but in fact, that's not what you feel. Mm-hmm. In other words, you can be out of phase with the conventions of feeling. And that when you think about what it is to be a human being, there is an entire system of conventions that lay on feeling there's a right and wrong and this much or there's too much, too little ways, understandings about feeling uh, that we're not usually attuned to. Yeah. And cultures differ in what feelings they recognize. Yeah, of course. You know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's a different, it's like keys on a piano, you yeah. know. Uh, they're different um uh, octave stretches and notes that get recognized, yeah. as in music, across cultures. So I got interested in that. Yeah, and even across, I mean, and not even, I mean, of course we can all think of national examples of that, but but even like within the United States, I mean, the upper Midwest or the deep south or California, yes. those are different, or New England. I mean, so, yes. and it feels like, so you're... Oklahoma. Oklahoma, yeah, the West, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you're shining a light, so I think that's so important. Yes, that we don't have a language for it, but that also, especially in the late 20th century, I think we don't we don't know how to take emotions seriously. When, 
When, I mean, of course, now we're kind of coming around to this specter that emotion, but, you know, that, well, that we kind of have to take it seriously. But I feel like now we also, it's very clear that we don't have that, we don't know how to do that or have a serious deliberation and reckoning and addressing things in that sense. And what you also, um, but but I think this is such an important statement you make that, um, you know, that runs all the way through work, that also we we think the other side is being emotional and we're not. Yes. And the, the, right. the, the really right. important realization is that we are all, that this is a piece of how we are all inhabiting the moment. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Mm. Exactly. And that it's social, right? The f- you, that's one of your big points, that, that this line between our private emotional lives and social realities is, is like acknowledging that is just being reality-based. It's kind of like being in the world as it is and not as we fantasize it should be. Right, right. Uh, in um, my latest book, uh, Strangers in Their Own Land, uh, anger and mourning on the American right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got very interested in something I call the deep story, yeah. which is a way of thinking about emotion. Uh, I uh, live and have long taught sociology uh, at Berkeley in California, which is a blue state, as you know, mm-hmm. blue town. I think I've heard that, <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and in... Um, 2011, uh, I realized that already the uh, the country was falling apart. There were increasing divide between Democrats, Republicans, left, right, and that I didn't understand uh, those on the right, and that I was in a bubble of the, mm. my neighbors, and you know students and so on, also were in a bubble, yeah. and that we're all in <laughs> both in electronic bubbles and media bubbles and geographic bubbles, yeah. the coasts on one side, the Midwest and South on the other. So I determined to get out of my bubble and come to know people uh, that were as far right as Berkeley, California was uh, yeah. left. Right. And to try and climb what I called an empathy wall, uh, to permit myself a great deal of curiosity uh, about the experiences and viewpoints of people that I knew I would have differences with. And, you know, people have said... uh, and it turned out to be an extraordinary experience. It took mm-hmm. me five years of really getting to know people, asking you know, where they were born, where their school was, what row they sat in in school, um, what their favorite thing to do was, mm-hmm. where their um, ancestors were buried. And in the course of going fishing with them, uh, in course of really getting to know them, uh, I came up with this idea of a deep story as a way of getting to emotion. So, so that wasn't and, a phrase you'd used before, that the deep story? No. The narrative no. as felt. Right. That's yes. such an important... So, so, yes. how, so how would you start to tell, you know, 
so, someone who was not so how would you start to tell the deep story of our time as you as you as you inhabited it um, in that well, in that experience what i um what I came to uh, feel and realize is that um, both the left and the right have different deep stories. Mm -hmm. So what is a deep story? A deep story is um, a what you feel about a highly salient situation uh, that's very important to you. You take facts out of of the deep story. You take moral mm -hmm. precepts out of the deep story. Mm -hmm. It's just what feels true. And I think we all have deep stories, whatever our politics, um, but that we're not fully aware of them, mm -hmm. that they're dreamlike and uh, are told through metaphor. Mm. So what I did was listen for a very you know, number of years, uh, really getting to know people, uh, of course, of a series of visits. And then I kind of distilled down uh, what the premises were from yeah. the things I was hearing people say, and then sought a connection between those premises and a metaphor that seemed to express them. And the metaphor for the right-wing deep story that I describe in Strangers is that you're waiting in line mm -hmm. for the American dream that you feel you very much deserve. It's like uh, waiting in uh, a pilgrimage. And yeah. the light line isn't moving mm -hmm. and has your feet are tired. You feel you're properly uh, deserving of this reward that's ahead. And... The idea is you don't begrudge anyone. Right, right. Okay. This in this right deep story, don't begrudge anyone. You're not a hateful person. But you see then in the second moment of the right wing deep story, somebody cutting ahead of you. Mm -hmm. You think, well, gee, who's that? Well, that is a black or a woman who through affirmative federally mandated affirmative action programs, finally is given access to jobs that used to be uh, reserved for whites and men. Yeah. And then you see um, undocumented workers. They seem to you to be cutting ahead. Well, you know, why are they getting special treatment? And then refugees, why are they getting special treatment? I ended up doing this research in uh, around southwest Louisiana, um, Lake Charles, at, which is a highly, uh, it, it's an oil center of the petrochemical industry, yeah. with highly polluted uh, water and land. And so the Louisiana brown pelican, which became extinct, had to be reinstated that was the state bird, correctly. It was the state yeah, bird, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it seems to be waddling up and cutting in line. Many people told me, oh, the liberals put animals ahead of people. Right. You know, uh, must be animists. So in another moment of the right-wing deep story, uh, the president of the country, Barack Obama, who should be uh, tending fairly to all uh, 
waiters in line, mm-hmm. seems to be waving to the line cutters. And, and he, in fact, is he a line cutter? The idea mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. how did his mother, she was a single mother, not a rich woman, mm-hmm. afford a Harvard education, a Columbia education, something fishy? Mm-hmm. That, that was the, the thought there. And um, no idea of universities having scholarships for brilliant students. And so uh, in a final moment of the right-wing deep story... Someone from the coasts, someone uh, highly educated, someone from that so-called elite, turns around, and uh, they're really close to the prize, or they have the prize, but they turn around and look at the others who are waiting in line, and uh, said, oh, you backward Southern, mm. ill-educated, um, yeah. racist, uh, redneck, sexist, yeah. uh, homophobic, mm-hmm. redneck. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. then that is the estranging thing to that insult. Uh, and then they felt like strangers in their own land. Wait a minute. You know, here I am waiting in line. So a sense of justification is implied in this metaphor. So I uh, told a story, and then I went back to the people uh, that I had come to know and said, does this uh, ring a bell? Uh, you, went, this, you mean back like, back it, at Berkeley and back in, in the Coastal? No, no, oh. no. Back in uh, Oh, you, when you had this, this deep story to the people living in yeah, Louisiana. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. This, um, yeah. So, yeah. and they would say, one man told me, I, I live in your metaphor. Another mm-hmm. one said, you read my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one said, no, you have it wrong, that the people who are waiting in line are paying for the line cutters. And mm-hmm. so that's why mm-hmm. we're enraged. Another one said, oh, look, we leave that line. We secede, you know, <laughs> getting another leader. Yeah. Uh, so they gave right. it different okay. endings. Yeah. But you can see it's my effort to get at feeling. Yeah, and how detached it can become from facts. Yes, and uh, something I, th- I think a lot about, and to me this comes through in um, you talking about um, the deep story, because in the and as you said, the facts, facts and moral precepts arise out of the deep story and we kind of have this idealized and this is such a big anguish right now right like well, actually facts, we take them out we of take it. them out we, of they, the story we remove them from it it's right. not about facts and it's not about moral attitudes right. either and and it, so that so that so in 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 describing that you you're also you're also saying that you know cutting against a kind of a story we tell ourselves about facts culturally, which is that somehow they are these objective, true things. I mean, you're really getting at the difference between facts and truth. And there can obviously be a connection, right. but truth right. is much more complicated than facts. It's, yes, uh-huh. it's a felt truth. Yes, and embodied. In fact, when yeah. I went back and forth between Berkeley and, and, like, and the people I came to know and really respect in the other world of uh, the, the South, um, Southwest Louisiana, uh, I came to 
to realize that there were different truths, yeah. <laughs> living yeah. in different yeah. truths. And yeah. of course, Fox News reaffirmed theirs, mm-hmm. and the New York Times and uh, NPR reaffirmed Berkeley's. And so uh, there are facts. I believe in the reality of facts. Yes, yes. And I have a whole appendix that, yeah. that in fact, uh, you know, looks at, for example, in the appendix, I, I look at uh, kind of common impressions, and uh, one was that, oh, a lot of people work for the federal government. You know, a third of employees, you know, something like 30, 40% work for the federal government. Well, I went back and looked it up. It's 1.9% really? of all employed mm-hmm. people work for the federal government. Yeah. And even if you add state workers, community workers, public workers, um, in hospitals and teachers, it only comes up to I think uh, eighteen. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that the deep story in a way, um, and again, we all have a deep story. Yeah. Um, it repels certain facts that don't fit it. Yeah, and it invites other facts that do. Yeah. And we uh, we have to acknowledge that. I mean, to to really get down with one another and respectfully kind of try and cross the empathy wall across the partisan divide. Yeah. You, in Strangers in Their Own Land, um, take up what you call a keyhole issue um, Mm -hmm. to to kind of go deep into what are the dynamics that collect around a specific subject and mm-hmm. to really understand the dynamics, and you talk about the, the great paradox, and um, and it mm-hmm. was, uh, um, it's about our relationship with the natural world, which is such such a central issue of our time, right? I mean, and it's something we have to civilizationally civilizationally reckon with together. Um, and you, you know, you point at this dynamic that um, in the part of the country you were in, there is, there is, uh, well, first of all, an abundant and beautiful natural environment and mm. great pollution and great mm-hmm. res- resistance to regulating polluters. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's such, I mean, just to start out, I, you know, what I see in that's such an example of where um, people from the outside of all the dynamics that go into that would say, um, it's just obvious, and you know, and they probably might even no. say it's obvious mm-hmm. that that's ignorant, or it's obvious that that's stupid, no. right? Like people yeah. are not adding mm-hmm. up the facts, like facts are numbers, and one plus one equals two, and there's no other answer you can come to. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and so yeah, let's go into that. How what you started okay. to see? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, just to back up about the great paradox. Okay. Um, uh, that is again that um, across the country, it is the red states uh, that are the poorer states, the states with the most disrupted families, um, uh, the uh, worst education and health care, who have the highest, um, so more disease and kind of lowest life expectancy, Mm -hmm. are also the states that receive more money uh, from the federal government mm. in grants than they give to it in tax dollars and resist the federal government. And for the environment, this keyhole issue, um, 
you have the paradox that it is uh, uh, the red states who, uh, which in general suffer a greater degree of exposure to hazardous waste, are also the states that uh, think we've uh, carried environmentalism too far yeah. and uh, overworry it and uh, that uh, we don't actually need government in their regulating polluters. So that's the that's the the keyhole paradox yeah. as you're saying. And but you know there's uh there's a background. I think right right. Um partly um the I think the people I came to know uh in Louisiana felt that uh, the Federal government was um, a bigger, badder version of local government, and the truth is that in the state of Louisiana, the local government—that is, the state government—has not protected people okay. from pollution. Okay, and so there—I didn't know this going in, but I learned it that um, actually people feel, felt disappointed that the regulators were giving rights to uh, drill uh, wells uh, and inject hazardous waste fairly near neighborhoods and to pollute uh, public waters, giving out permits like candies, as one man told me. You know, there's so, a there's a, I just yeah. yeah there, I want I want to go on, but there's this passage in 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 the book that I uh, in strangers in their own land that I I just this just as an example of this, and maybe this is the person you're talking about. You know, Harold, someone in the, the state yes. always seems yes. to come down on the little guy. He notes, right. this is, take this by you. If your motorboat leaks a little gas into the water, the warden will write you up. But if companies leak thousands of gallons of it and kill all the life here, the state lets them go. That, right. I don't know. That example hits home. It may, I can see that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like the big, uh, the big companies uh, are so rich and powerful that they uh, basically have uh, bought <laughs> the legislature. In mm-hmm. other words, that, that those industrialists are the 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 state legislators, and um, and so in a way, the companies have outsource the moral dirty work to the state. So they okay. say, okay, you know, let's let's get a legislature that goes along with our development. Let's talk jobs, 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 and let's, let's talk development. Let's get the people with us by talking uh, up jobs. But in fact, these are highly automated plants. The good jobs uh, machines now do. You know, mm. many more jobs are... Uh, you know, being a flagger for, I know you can get, I think, $16 an hour, 17 for a mm. flagger, or, you know, uh, working in construction. But those are temporary jobs. So the company is saying, oh, jobs, jobs, jobs. So uh, we don't want to be regulated by the big bad federal uh. or by the state government. And so the companies, with the money that the state gives them in this, 
I think it was $1.6 billion that uh, was in the last five years in Louisiana um, offered yeah. to companies uh-huh. yeah, to come in with that public money, yeah. which came from taxes. Um, they then can make donations to the Audemont Society or for new football uniforms for... LSU games, you know, they're looking good and setting up third grade classes in chemistry. Meanwhile, the state um, officials, the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, is being very weak and giving out permits uh, uh, as, as one of the people I interviewed said, like candy. So the state looks terrible. The the company looks good. It's kind of emotional, actual manipulation, you could say, to get you to feel like the company is your friend and to feel like the state is your enemy. Yeah, and there's you also describe this interesting dynamic that um, that again is is nuanced, right? It's not something that would be obvious to anybody. I mean, a lot of this is true, but I mean, for example, you. Um, you you have this chapter called the Rememberers, mm. and there's yeah. something where you you this is this amazing sentence about a sociological understanding that memory, just in general, is an indirect expansion of power. Um, yeah. There's you. I'm just going to read a bit of this because it's wonderful writing, and it kind of gets to this point. You said many workers in the petrochemical plants were conservative Republicans and avid hunters and fishers who felt caught in a terrible bind. They loved their magnificent wilderness. They remembered it from childhood. They knew and respected it as sportsmen, but their jobs were in industries that polluted, often illegally, this same wilderness. They had children to take care of and felt wary of supporting any environmental movement or federal government action that might jeopardize them. Um, yeah, and you know, the basic feeling around town was that one shouldn't get too hung up on the environment, feel too nostalgic for cleaner times, or be too retro. And again, you get these, your your feeling rules. That wasn't what residents were supposed to feel. That's because a fracking boom was on, and many new industries were on their way to Lake Charles to process the natural gas it freed from the cracked earth. And then you say, so ironically, strangely, embarrassingly, the memory of Southern environmental glory fell in part to respectful clerks in federal offices and to northern environmentalists. Yeah. There's so much complexity there. Yeah. Doesn't it break your heart? Yeah. I mean, it does mine. Yes. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Because the people I came to know are know more about the environment. They know, you know, which fish are in what area, where you set the crab pots, where, you know, what ducks you can shoot at what period of, of, of the year. They love their land, and yet, and yet, they're, um, they're, they're caught. I mean, the people working in the plants, and I talked to a woman who said, you know, I asked you, do you talk to your neighbors about uh, the environment? She said, you know, our neighbors work in the plants, and uh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want them to feel accused. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. as if the people working in the plants would take on the guilt. Right, or as though the guilt belongs to them. It's not a person, you know, poor person, you know what I mean? It's not their personal guilt. 
uh, it's a company policy, and it's uh, the absence of, you know, uh, regulation. Here are the rules here. Right, you know, right. Like California has very strict rules. We enjoy a cleaner environment as a result. Mm-hmm. It's at that level. The guilt is not a personal one. Right. So that I felt was very poignant and sweet of her to be mindful that, you know, an operator might feel accused. Yes. And again, like... how poignant this whole thing gets. It does. Well, and what you are shining a light on is the human complexity here. And we may think mm. we may it does make things messy, right? It 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 defies yes. I mean it's we still try to do it, but it defies the way we want to divide the world into issues <laughs> and have yes, an up or a down yes. and take a vote and and um but again yeah. I you know I just feel like you are for this is saying let's let's deal with reality and not yeah. not wishful thinking. And let's talk about reality and not wishful thinking by having a civil, uh, mm. respectful, public conversation, yeah. you know, where nobody is, is bullying conversationally anybody else. You know, yeah. you're, you're coming together um, to see if there can be common ground on the environment. And there can be, I think. Mm-hmm. What, the people yeah. I came to know were very interested and very approving of uh, renewables. In fact, there's something right. called the Green Tea Movement. That is Tea Party. Oh, that's really? uh, all for renewables. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So there's, yeah. We're, but we're not even finding that common ground because we aren't even respectfully reaching out to look for it. Right. We're in our bubbles still. In fact, I, I think that problem remains with us. And especially on the left, I think mm-hmm. uh, there's a, a kind of uh, a rigid sort of um, inward turning, I would say. I mm-hmm. find it very sad. I think we have to reach out mm-hmm. looking for potential common ground. Yeah, You know, um, one of the things I feel you... Uh, raise up is, um, for example, this is something I'm, you know. I'm so it's not only that we insist on our facts as the the facts that matter and need to you know matter in a pure way, but um, we want to use our words, and I feel like this is especially acute with the with our reckoning with the natural world, with the environment. The language mm-hmm. of climate change is. A lightning rod, you know, you can argue that it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. You can ar- certainly mm-hmm. argue that it shouldn't be, but there it is. And I feel like you tell a lot of stories, including one with your son, David, who you mm-hmm. brought together with Mike Schaff or Schaff, who you, yes. who yes. you befriended mm-hmm. down there. And one of the things I saw rise up as they spoke, coming from very different worlds, was, you know, your son saying something about, and this would contribute to, this would diminish climate change. And and mm-hmm. um, the Mike, who's from Louisiana, you know, he, he wanted he wanted to use the language of energy independence and free, right. free entrepreneurs. Yes. And yet it was the same thing, and it would achieve the yes. same goals. Right. Right. You know, I came to think <clears throat> that one way <clears throat> we can uh, talk across the divide uh, is to learn uh, how to stretch symbols, not to avoid 
and neglect the symbol of the person on the other side, but to take that symbol seriously and apply it to something the person you're talking to is not applying it to. For example, um, uh, I followed around an extraordinary man named uh, General Russell Honoré. He was the hero uh, who rescued uh, the the victims of Katrina uh, back in Mm. 05. And he's become an ardent environmentalist uh, now. And he was talking to uh, a group of uh, businessmen in Lake Charles, and their symbol was freedom. Freedom to invest money, freedom to get rich, freedom from onerous government regulation, freedom. And they were against regulations, right, by the federal government or state. And so he gets up there and um, he said, well, you know, I woke up this morning and I looked out at Lake Charles and I saw a man in a boat and he had his fishing line out. And he had his bucket ready. But, you know, that man is not free to lift out an uncontaminated fish. Mm. (laughs) And I thought, you genius. And I followed him around just to see how he did this thing of symbol stretching, taking Mm -hmm. freedom. Yes, of Mm -hmm. course, freedom's great. We're all for freedom. But don't we want to be free to enjoy a clean body of water, public water, and isn't that freedom too, freedom from? So he didn't do it by uh, putting them down or uh, bullying them. He he started with where they were, as any mediator does. Right. Well, he uh, also honored, he honored the complexity of the world as they live it and see it and have have That's understood right. it, how it's come to them. That's right. We all need That's that. Right. We all need that, right? We all crave we that. We do. Mm. And you know, the other thing, you were just saying that some uh, symbols uh, are are too hot. We have to be respectful, yeah. right, of yeah. the other person's symbols. I learned that in a, in a funny way um, by being the problem myself. Mm. You know, uh, I was... Uh, with Joan Blades, who is the co-founder of MoveOn.org. Yes, I know Joan and, and, Move, and uh, the Living Room Conversations you've participated in. That's right. In, right? Yeah. Well, I invited a person I'd written about in the book, uh, Sharon Galicia, to she and her uh, children to uh, visit us in Berkeley. We had a wonderful visit. Yeah. And during it, we did a Living Room Conversation, got left together with right. Um, someone named John Gables was on the right, and uh, to talk about can we come to uh, some common ground on uh, getting a clean environment? So we're um, we're sitting down. We're devoted to this, and you know it was a, a kind of a warm, respectful uh, atmosphere, and then. Someone on the right said, well, what we really need is a world um, that's uh, completely, uh, lets the, the, um, the market do uh, 
Mm-hmm. Let it be really the only mechanism. And like in the the vision of Milton Friedman, well, I happen mm-hmm. to know the work of Milton Friedman. Yeah. And uh, it. <laughs> I think if you turn this all over to the market, which has already happened in Louisiana, you yeah. know, the, the state is ineffective, that it's a disaster for these very good people. Mm-hmm. So I... Um, for I had my alarm system back on, and I, I kind of gave a little speech there. Okay, <laughs> and you know, yeah. it turned into a little bit of an encyclopedia. It was mm-hmm. uh, not in the spirit that had been developed. So, uh, and my interlocutor, as John Gable said, "Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I know that's one of your symbols." I learned a lot. See, I was the problem there. Mm-hmm. I, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I got out of phase. I uh, and you started and lecturing. So he said, yeah. Oh, yeah, "Yeah, I mean, absolutely yeah. wrong." And uh, but I learned a lot, and I said, "You know, thank you." I realized I did lose it there, mm-hmm. and. Um, but it's because I've come to care about these people, and I'm sorry for the fix they're in. Yeah. And uh, but I thank you for being mindful of my symbol. I wasn't mindful of it myself. Mm. So I, what I think we need to learn to do is kind of respect the symbols people have and move them, apply them further than the person you're talking to might do, and also avoid or be mindful of the power of a symbol, um, as I myself was not. Those two things are what any mediator knows to do. And I think we all in this country now need to learn the arts of mediation. Yes. And and, and part of that is, I mean, you know, we, we started out speaking about your your work in sociology and your focus on the sociology of emotion and and taking emotion seriously, which I really it's hard for me to imagine anybody could argue that emotion doesn't in fact seriously matter in politics now, but but you're but I but I get, you know and then there's a there's a, a an obvious extension of that here, which is that we need emotional intelligence, right? I mean that's what mediation mm-hmm. too, and mm-hmm. we need to say this is an impo- this is as important as all of our other forms of intelligence that we that yes. we wield. Yes. Yes. That we wield yes. very confidently and boldly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. You could say that much of my work, I've done nine books now, has been uh, an effort one way or another to um, honor and try and get <laughs> the world to honor the importance of emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. especially as used by service workers, you know, caregivers, child yeah. care workers, elder yeah. care workers, um, who anybody in the service industry is using emotional intelligence, and it matters enormously that we all learn to do it well and don't sneer at it. Um, yeah. But in fact, see, uh, that really the the crust of society is very thin, you know, yeah, yeah. and and it needs to be kind of it needs water and sun and nurture, is so that uh, it's not as brittle as it has now become in America. Yeah. 
our life together needs caregiving. <laughs> mm, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, and I feel that this is so. So, I feel that we actually possess more intelligence about how to be in relationship across dif- where difference is present. And where true mm-hmm. misunderstanding is present, we have a lot of intelligence about that in our families. Yes, we do. And you know, you, and you have know, you have all yeah. these relationships, like you have Sally and Shirley, uh, or two a friend, two friends who mm-hmm. you spend a lot of time with and write about in in Louisiana, and you know, on the two sides of our social chasms, and everyone has that person now, and everybody yes. has the brother-in-law, right? Sure, who they don't stop yeah. loving. That's right. That's right. And, you know, when I set out uh, to, uh, on this odyssey, people would, I got two kinds of responses, which were very interesting. One was, oh, I couldn't do that. I'd be so mad. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. those people are wrong. And the other one was, oh, you're going where? You're going yeah. to center of right wing? Oh, they wouldn't say it, but the kind of facial expression, well, well maybe you're pretty right yourself. <laughs> in other okay. words, you're going mm-hmm. to an enclave in which uh, you will be embraced as similar. What was missing from those two responses was the idea that you can be exactly who you are yeah. um, and take your alarm system off, climb an empathy wall, and get to know people on the other side of it. And I don't, and then I got told, oh, you must be especially empathic. No, hmm. not at all. Um, the, uh, in fact, you know, I think we're all actually extremely good at it. The only thing is we don't apply that skill, that knowledge, to getting to know the other, and, whoever we define mm-hmm, as other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, That's the only thing different I did. Yeah, I noticed that, I because I, I, I looked at and were at a number of interviews that were done, you know, interviews you gave and have given across years, and I noticed that a great number of the, especially, let's say, the progressive um Interviewers, they, they like they remark with great astonishment on your kindness, right? Like, kind yeah. of like, how could you be so kind? And it, and in a way, it kind of models kind of the rut we're in, right? They, that, right, <laughs> or too kind, foolish. Right, it's right, a fool's right, mission. Right. What are you doing? Somebody said, as so after Charlottesville. Some. Now that we've seen that. Yeah, Is this... how can you talk to these people? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I went back and talked about Charlottesville with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they said, look, everybody should have stayed home. Uh, we're as appalled by it as anybody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, a friend of mine, a colleague in the social department at Berkeley, suggested, well, let's don't take the uh, statue of Robert E. Lee down put another statue beside it of, let's say, Ida B. Wells mm-hmm. and tell history as having two sides, you know, mm. uh, or Frederick Douglass, mm. you know. And 
they nodded their head. They hadn't thought about that. Well, who would pay for the second statue? You right, know, they right, came up. Right. But, you know, they didn't say, oh, no, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them said, look, just get rid of all the statues, you know. It just causes problems. So there were a variety of responses to this, but there was a conversation, you right, know. Right, um, Yeah. Yeah, and and to me, another great paradox, right? The, you talked about the great paradox of kind of people being opposed to um, to things that actually would or what would be might be helpful. But it, the paradox of engaging difference, which is you describe, right? Is you know, you said you it does. It's not about going in and saying, "Change my mind." I want to be a Republican, mm-hmm. right? Or I want to join the Tea no. Party, or for or expecting them to because they engage with you, say, you know, I, I want yeah. to, I want to be at Berkeley. Why didn't? <laughs> um, so yeah. you didn't change yeah. your politics, but what you said, and and mm-hmm. I think this is true, and I know you've seen this as a sociologist across all kinds of like meaningful encounter with difference. Right. It generally doesn't change minds, but you said it enlarged me as a human being. Right, right. It did. It did, and. Uh, 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 to be able to uh, imagine myself into a, a different heart. <laughs> One man told me, you know, um, look, we have uh, similar minds and we have similar hearts, but we have different souls. Mm. I thought that was so interesting. Mm. And so I said to him, thank you for saying that. Um would you be a co-sociologist with me mm. and figure out how the souls are different? And he looked at me, <laughs> scratched his head. Well, I'm not sure what I—I yeah. I know what you mean, but sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, in this empathy thing. Um, another wonderful encounter uh, was with a gospel singer. Uh, who was uh, sitting across the table at a meeting of Republican women of Southwest Louisiana. And she said, oh, I love Rush Limbaugh. You know, the... Uh, Conservative right, commentator. Radio yeah. commentator, yeah. yeah. Well, I first thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, and then I thought, wonderful. I Here's, here's a chance for me to get larger here. So I said to her, could we meet sometime this week for some sweet teas and and you can explain what you, why you love Rush Limbaugh? And she said, yes, sure. So uh, the next day we were meeting for sweet teas and she explains, I love, love Rush Limbaugh because he hates feminazis. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I asked her, well, what is a feminazi? Well, it's a, it's a feminist who, you know, doesn't like children, doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. wants men to cook, and um, she goes on. And then um, she goes on to environmental wackos, you know, these people that want to regulate us to death. And after uh, I'm asking her, she stops me and says, um, You've told me that you uh, come from, you know, the other side. So, uh, is it hard for you to listen to me? And I told her, actually, it's not hard at all. 
I have my alarm system off, and you are, I'm learning about you, and you are doing me such a big favor to share your thoughts. I can't tell you how grateful I am. And then she says, take your alarm system off. I do that too. She says, I do it with my kids. I do it with my parishioners. Right. And I thought, you know, okay, well, let's start with that. You know? Yeah. A little common ground. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to ask you to say a little bit more, but right when you you can put we in fact do that all the time because I was going to say what do. do you mean when you when we say you know do you is it a moment where you say okay am I but but actually we have it's a habit we have in in the other place right we do it at work right because you can't just yes. blurt out how you really feel about what someone said at every moment no uh-huh. no, no. Uh-huh. there are rules about that and there should be uh-huh. it's kind of the ground rules of social interesting. life interesting. Yeah. 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 One thing I found we get yeah. really better at it than than we are. So that's a great invitation. Yes. It doesn't mean that you're capitulating. See, that's the misunderstanding, yeah. I think. Yeah. Especially on the left. Oh, if you listen to them, that means uh, you've been taken over mm-hmm. and uh Are you letting Not at all. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Not at mm-hmm. all. It just means being emotionally intelligent. You've developed a way of of talking. Um, like about climate change, I think there would be uh, a way using some of this symbol stretching that uh, Russell Honore has used right. uh, so effectively, and um, you know, s- speaking respectfully. Yeah. Actually, that is the a fundamental floor of social interaction, and when you barrel on in there. Uh, and, and ignore the um, competence and uh, identity yeah, just of the, the person dignity you're talking of people. to. Yeah, it's just counterproductive. It is counterproductive, and I think I, you know, I said to you at the beginning. And I grew up in in a small town in Oklahoma, and I, I, mm-hmm. I haven't, you know, I, I've lived in other places the rest of my life, but the sneer, you know the sneer, the tone of sneer that is behind in so many of the media that I like, right? Yes, that that yes, that I right. honor, um, and yet yes. that has become. Yes. And then the tone of sneer, which I think is really unco- You know, I don't, I don't think I think it's un- unconscious, which which makes it more, which makes it the effect worse because then it leads mm-hmm. to. You know, I sometimes want to say, and I think certainly when something like climate change comes up and. The way people talk down to, um, you know, any any point right that might be made. I, I sometimes want to say, you know, do you want to is the do you do you want to be right in every moment, you know, or do you want to mm. be part of the larger healing? That's right. And there's always this. That's right. Batting down to, with words and sentences and you know, I perspective. Know. I know. We all need to be. Makers, if you want to make a social contribution, mm. help build uh, a public conversation about the big issues of the day. And in order to do that, you have to really be good at a emotion management. <laughs> you know, make yeah. it a, it's a yeah. contribution to the larger whole. Right. To be really good uh, at that. One of the poignant things I felt you know, throughout. Um Strangers in their own land, and this time you, you've spent um, in Louisiana uh, is it, it's a very different religious 
uh, culture to to, mm-hmm. to yours and mm-hmm. to the culture at, in Berkeley, California. Um, um, I mean, it's the Bible Belt, right? Yeah, and it's a very yeah, important part of the American culture. In Berkeley, California. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know there are, but right, it's it's Bible mm-hmm. Belt culture. And um, you know, one of the things you talked about is as you're with people uh, who, you know, it, I think I think really again and again you find that if you use emotional intelligence, you can you can always have this conversation you can engage at least what are the questions here at least what are the challenges with people who come at it from a very different story and one of the things you found which i think is an interesting critique for you know the more the side that considers itself to be enlightened is um uh that while that that regulation um that that a lot of the things that are coming at people as what needs to be done um in fact it's not about repairing like not about how do we get whole i mean you said you know the question of how could repairs be made a lot of people find you know that their bibles are more useful in that sense than the government mm-hmm. so that's a question okay what has the government done for you let's you know maybe they have a point maybe mm-hmm. uh it hasn't uh lived up to its promise or maybe it's getting blamed for things it didn't do. Okay, mm. let's figure that out. Let's have right, a right. respectful public conversation about just that. Is the the government kind of, um, uh, in fact, letting people down? You know, uh, or are they expecting too much of it? Um, what's the record? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, let's let's talk about that and the specifics. Yeah. And I also felt that you you really became attuned to this that this idea that is very much out there now that it's like jobs versus the environment. Mm-hmm. And there's this point where you say, maybe I'd been so busy listening to the unsung tune about cleaning up pollution that I wasn't hearing the loud and clear song about jobs. Mm-hmm. I think you certainly got, I mean, you certainly, um, you know, attended to that real concern but you also as you as you attended to that you know you kind of started saying but who's who's asking the question if this is really an either or that that's the conversation that in fact is there to have that we could get to if we could get through all this that we can't talk to each other that's right that's right um and uh you're talking to people that love the water, you know, mm-hmm. love to fish and love to hunt. So, um, you know, you can, can start with that. Okay, they, they want clean water. clean. They remember when it was uh, mm-hmm. clean and want it back. Um, so, uh, you know, there's the, the issue of, of the clean environment, there's the issue also of global warming, which yeah, yeah. Uh, they reject. They think it's a, it's a made-up problem uh, that's an excuse to expand government control. So um, if you were to sit down with someone and want to talk about global warming and say, you know what, uh, the, the scientists are really finding there's some warming and that it's... Uh, uh, leading to a volatility that's not been there before. Yeah. And uh, 
we're all victims of it. Let's let's just see if we can talk about this. Interesting, the people that I met, many of them worked for these large companies. And Philip 66, Sassol, Exxon. And if you read the CEO speeches and mm-hmm. the websites of these very large petrochemical plants, the leaders of these companies uh, actually acknowledge uh, climate change. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're actually, many of them, diversifying, in fact. Uh, So what's missing, I think, a a real potential uh, for a conversation is to say, look, you're working for that company and the CEO of that company. I I know you love the company, you love the job, but the head of the company that you're working in uh, thinks it is a problem. You know, so uh, where do we where do we take it from there? Yeah. There's you know, there's a there's a paragraph in your book where you where you just list, you say, even among the most ardent and extreme, or I think maybe this was another interview you gave, you said, even among the most ardent and extreme people you met over five years of research, you found specific issues on which there was potential for coalition, <coughs> safeguarding yeah. children on the internet, reducing prison populations for nonviolent offenders, protecting against commercialization of the human <coughs> genome, pushing for good jobs, rebuilding our rail system, roads and bridges, and our social infrastructure. Um, that is so interesting to think about. What if we started by saying uh, what we could start talking about tomorrow? Right. Right. <laughs> Where we're not low-hanging con- fruit. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And do it in the in the spirit we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You um you in in um, strangers in their own land. You near the end. You say. You write a letter to a friend on the liberal left. You, know, you write a letter to a Louisiana friends on the, or you'd say, you know, if, if you imagine if I re, if I were to write to my mm-hmm. friends in Louisiana on the right, or if I were to write to a liberal friend. I mean, I, there was a sentence in in your letter to um, your friend on the liberal left. I, I, it's just again, it's humanizing and it's provocative in a human way. Consider the possibility that in their situation, you might end up closer to their perspective. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that's the, right. yeah. Go on. That's that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we are products of our own experience. You mm-hmm. know? And what if um, you uh, grew up in a family? Um, and so many said, oh, we were poor, but we didn't know it. Had a great childhood, but we were poor, yeah. didn't know it. Yeah. Um, okay, what if that had been your experience? And what if your dad's job and how much he earned was the central fact of your life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and what if it was a blue-collar job, but you felt put down for doing that blue-collar job, you know? Yeah. I think... There, there's something actually missing in the entire vocabulary we have for talking about social class. Yeah. Because I didn't go just to another region or to people with a different political 
views, I went to a different social class. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of sneering on the left mm-hmm. uh, at the blue-collar class. Yeah. And, that language. and they're furious at it. Look, we're the daily workers. We're yeah. climbing the telephone pole to repair your telephone wire. We're repaving your roads. We're, uh, who are you? You know, to to put that down. And there's a lot of humble pie to eat here. And uh, I think it's a problem I didn't know when I set out this, Mm. that I would come back and be as critical of the little cocoon I've long Mm. been in here Mm. uh, as I am. And a kind of, you know, it's not only a a contempt that... uh, I feel is so, uh, it really bothers me now whenever I hear it or see it, Um, and that is buried to some degree. But there's a kind of a reluctance to to reach out. It's as if on the left, there's a lot of good political will, but it's gotten curled up in onto itself Mm. and become a kind of a self-monitoring program. Oh, you said this wrong, that wrong. Instead of reaching out to build coalitions, because mm-hmm. we're a big country, not everyone's like us, not everyone's like them. What we need are sturdy coalitions. And I think labor unions, when the labor movement was uh, at its height, what are we down to 9%? Yeah. The, public sector, or the private sector. Anyway, when the labor movement was um, uh, uh, much larger, and, and uh, there, there was a way that people of different colors and classes got together. And when you had a compulsory draft, too, right, people right. of different colors yeah. and, and, and classes got together in a natural way. It was they an experience. Each other. They yeah. Were, yeah. Yeah. Public schools have done this. Yeah. Um, but we're down on those, those crossover connective institutions. I think we need to build another one. I would like to see a civil service, you know, one year required of everyone. Of <laughs> everyone. We're, of yeah. everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Of everyone, yeah. and you go to a different region and mm-hmm. get to know people. Get, first of all, get to know how to um, treat people respectfully and listen actively and be a mediator. Everybody should learn those skills and then go across uh, yeah. to uh, see if we can rebuild those uh, the, that connective tissue. Yeah. How do you? Um, I'm, I'm sure people have said to you, and I, I, I get into this conversation myself that um, this critique that you know <laughs> there are all kinds of groups of people, including like people of color, um, who have long felt like strangers in their own land in this country. Oh yeah, and then Definitely. when this right, and especially then when now. this yeah, yes, and especially now, uh, yet again, and. It's when white people, the, the, you know, the critique that white people wake up to this phenomenon when it's about other white people. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you work with that in your mind? I say it's true, and I think it's uh, it's an important insight 
And um, one thing I like about these living room conversations is that uh, a lot of the groups uh, are interracial. And let's get that very conversation and that point across in in those conversations. Mm-hmm. Yes, I... I think it's an excellent point. Okay. I mean, for example, the opiate uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, addiction problem uh, has, has been, oh, now they're called uh, diseases of despair, and, and the crack which is kind of a compassionate epidemic was way not, yeah. of look, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, whereas the crack yeah. epidemic in the inner cities, which yeah. had blacks, uh, wasn't... It was criminalized. Um, it was benignly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Even worse. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a point uh, that should be broadly received. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I want to draw to a close. This has been just such a big, wonderful conversation. Um, I'm just kind of curious about that. You say somewhere that the English language doesn't give us many words to describe the feeling of reaching out to someone from another world, and then this is in italics, and of having that interest welcomed. And mm-hmm. you said some of its own kind, mutual, is created. I just found that intriguing because I think so much about the power of words, and I wonder if you um, are there words you're using now? Are you thinking? Are there and and perhaps that gets at symbols and how important that is for us and in constructing our world? Well, I use the word empathy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, something we're all capable of. And uh, we, in a way, carry around little empathy maps who we should and shouldn't mm. feel empathic with. And we need to enlarge those maps, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, shift them uh, and so maybe there are different kinds of empathy. That's a uh, that, and one is you could call it pragmatic empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. to see if okay, uh, let's see if we can heal this divide. You're, you've got a purpose to it, and then some is just there, and it doesn't have that purpose. So you've already got two different, mm. you know, um, qualities of empathy and types of empathy. So, yeah, that's a very special word. Uh, and having it returned is you're kind of seeing mm. the humanity of the person uh, you've reached out to. Like Madonna Massey, this gospel singer, did to me. Oh, I do that too, she says. Right, when you talked to her about the I empathy wall, and right? So and she, she said, I have one of those too, yeah. Yeah, and she yeah. said, oh, uh, you're my first democratic friend. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. So we laughed. Uh-huh. We could laugh. Yes. It was a new pool of laughter possible that started with an absolute acknowledgement of our differences. I think that's a good metric. Like, <laughs> have you created a new pool of, what do you say, pool of laughter possible? That's good. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I think I would just want to ask you as we close and, and perhaps thinking about... Um, yeah, how you continue to live with this, what you learned, what you not just not just what you learned as a scholar, but what you learned as a human being. Um, you know, right now, as you look around in the world, um, uh, and as you as you move through this experience that has changed you, like what what makes you despair, and and what what is giving you hope? Mm. 
Well, um, I'm a positive person, I would mm-hmm. say. And uh, it tend to see the glass half full. And I think uh, we're at a moment of challenge as a culture. Uh, but we've been in those moments before. Yeah. And I, uh, I think it's time for us to look at uh, leaders who have uh, been real models of, uh, of repair. Uh, and let's look at Nelson Mandela, for example. Okay. He, uh, you know, his country was going to go to war yes. with itself. Right. 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 And there. Right. It was uh, bitter. If you look around the world, it's hard to find a place pre-Mandela that was more bitterly divided, black to white. Mm-hmm. And he 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 did it differently. He did yeah. it yeah. like Gandhi. He he was a unifier. He was he was uh, a guy who was very good at talking across uh, these hardened lines. And we have a lot to learn. From Nelson hmm. Mandela, studying and that kind of history and that kind of leadership. Yeah, yeah. Um, Martin Luther King. Yeah. These were people who were not off in their corners, just uh, separating themselves off, but yeah. were good at saying, "Look, uh, there are better angels here. Let's access them and uh, create a public conversation about a problem. Let's see where we can go with it." So. Let's uh, think of those positive leaders mm-hmm. and look to them and learn from them because um, they were real experts in empathy and pragmatism. Yeah. Yeah, I really like keeping that and empathy and pragmatism go together. I just is this is a weird connection to make, but I think it's in the afterword of your book that you mentioned Cafe Gratitude in Berkeley, which I yes. didn't realize had closed until I read that because yeah. um, it was kind of yeah. an institution there, um, and uh, you, you, I think the story you t- so it's a, it was a raw vegan place. And you were you were kind of imagining um, with this new kind of these new sets of eyes you have. You're saying, well, you know, thinking about some of your Christian friends in Louisiana, and you're thinking, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they would think of, hear about Cafe Gratitude and think, oh, it's a hippie place, but maybe mm-hmm. they would see that it has there's some real echoes there with with their mm-hmm. Christian a way touch of touch of church, yeah, touch yeah. of church. And then I actually looked because I, I was sad that it had closed, and I looked online, and I was I found this article in the I think the Berkeley student newspaper um, and the student it was kind of an obituary for Cafe Gratitude and the student was Ugh. saying that they loved the daily question that they used to ask there and that it would be mm. and this, then the examples they gave were what are you grateful for or who can mm. you forgive and you mm. know you know those yeah. are actually questions for example that Nelson Mandela asked yes. very yes. very surprisingly given yes. what he'd been through that's right. That's right. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have a lot to learn. We I have a lot to learn. I don't know if we can live up to his model, but it's worth a good try. Oh. Thank you so much for this beautiful interview and for your work. I'm so glad you're out there in the world. Well, my pleasure. Great mm. pleasure. Yeah. All right. Well, we will let you know uh, when we're putting this on the air. I'm not exactly sure what the schedule is, but, uh, but I know our... I know it's going to be very 
Gratefully received. <laughs> good. Okay. Good. Thank well, you. good luck to you. Thank you. Yeah. Have a lovely rest of your day. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.